But first, a quick recap. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we extrapolated from Genesis chapter 1 alone 20 different qualities of God that God reveals to us through his word. God is preeminent. He's creator, powerful, dynamic, involved, communicative, good, orderly, purposeful, life-giving, caring, creative, Trinitarian, relational, empowering, manifold, hierarchical, provider, thorough, and altogether exemplary. That was all Genesis chapter 1. And then... Last Easter, last year, 2020, I preached uh, probably the only Easter sermon um, maybe ever from the book of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, the call, the curse, and the cure. In Genesis 2 and toward the end of chapter 1, God creates us, humanity, in his image, you remember, to reflect his glory, and God calls us to produce, promote, and preserve life because God is good. He is a God of life. But we, all of us, all of humanity, was implicated in Adam and Eve's sin. We chose disobedience and death instead. The curse of sin, Scripture tells us, is death. Spiritual death, most significantly. A severing of our relationship with God himself. God said, on the day that you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. But sin also severed our interpersonal relationships with one another. Adam and Eve begin pointing fingers at one another, blame shifting. Sin curses our relationship with creation too. Even the ground is now going to bring forth thorns and thistles. One day we will all return to the ground when we physically die. This is all the curse of sin, and yet God doesn't give up on us. And in the midst of all these curses, we catch a glimpse of God's coming cure for our sin problem. Genesis 3, verse 15, the proto-euangelion, literally the first gospel, God's prophetic promise to send an offspring to and through Eve, who would one day crush the head of the serpent and triumph over sin and death itself. But chapter 4 was a rude reality check that Eve's immediate offspring would not be the fulfillment of that promise as the world's first murderer, Cain, kills his brother Abel, and the sin problem only continues to spiral downward for seven generations, culminating in the lustful, polygamous, chauvinist, murderous, vengeful, ambitious Lamech. But once again, God does not give up on us. He graciously provides Eve with another offspring, a new child, a new line, the line of Seth, and another eight generations later, we get the most promising prospect yet of God's long-awaited serpent-crushing Messiah, a righteous and blameless man named Noah. Righteous enough to be chosen for God's reboot of humanity. <clears throat> Noah's immediate family were the lone survivors of the flood. You remember God's judgment against the worldwide pandemic of human sin. Noah was righteous, <clears throat> but he was not sinless, it turns out. And less than a chapter after stepping off the boat, Noah gets booked for public drunkenness and indecent exposure, which his son Ham then turns into a public spectacle for which his son Canaan gets cursed. The Canaanites would then become uh, a thorn in the side of the Israelites for centuries to come. And sin once again continues its spread downward, to the infamous Nimrod, who oversees the most organized attempt at rebellion against God. 
at that time, the construction of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. But once again, God doesn't give up on us. God confuses their language, he scatters the people, but then out of all the nations in chapter 12, major turning point, God chooses a man named Abram. And God makes with him a covenant, a promise, three promises actually. God says, I will show you a land, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. Land, family, blessing. A people, a promise, and a place. These three promises point us to the three deepest needs in every human heart. First, a place to call home, a sense of security and belonging. Second, a people, a family, a, a supportive community, our need for relationship. And third, the promise of blessing. It's really the promise of a future. It's a sense of, of meaning and purpose and direction for our life. God is such a gracious Father, that he blesses us with all three of these things. But for the next 10 chapters then, chapters 13 through 22, we read one story after the next of Abraham and Sarah doubting God's covenant promises, literally laughing in his face. That's why their son Isaac's name is Laughter, means laughter, faithlessly lying to the Egyptians in chapter 12, and then again to Abimelech in chapter 20, conspiring together in chapter 16 to circumvent God's plan by giving Sarah's servant Hagar to Abraham as a second wife. Abraham's faithlessness was only outdone by his nephew Lot's, who's another kind of minor character. There for a few chapters, Lot was implicated not only in the War of the Nine Kings and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but also in a drunken, incestuous affair that results in the birth of the Ammonite and the Moabite peoples, two more of Israel's fiercest enemies for generations to come, but again, time after time, story after story, God doesn't give up on us. This is the recurring theme of Genesis. God proves that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And when it counts the most, on top of Mount Moriah in chapter 22, with a knife in his hand and his only son, on the altar, Abraham finally passes the test of faith, and he offers us, without a doubt, the most vivid prophetic foreshadowing of God's ultimate plan to rescue humanity from the curse of sin some 2,100 years later on that exact same mountain, Golgotha, by sacrificing his only son, Jesus, for the sin of the world. So most of chapters 13 through 22 then dealt with God's promise of a people. God had promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars. But Abraham remained childless until age 85, when, as I said, he took matters into his own hands with Hagar and had Ishmael. And then Abraham had to wait another 15 years after that before God gave him Isaac, only to call Abraham to sacrifice him. But here... At the end of chapter 22, after God has intervened to save Isaac, we can finally breathe a sigh of relief. God's promise of a people is starting to come to fruition. That's confirmed at the end of chapter 22 by the news that Abraham receives in verses 20 through 24, if you see it there in your Bible, that his extended family is now growing as well, including one Rebekah in verse 23, who will next week in chapter 24 marry Isaac in order to continue Abraham's lineage. So the people are starting to come together 
with his family a bit more secure, the story now draws our attention in chapter 23 to God's promise of a place. A place for Abraham's descendants, the promised land, Canaan. How will that promise be secured? After all, Hebrews 11, verse 9, in the New Testament explains that by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. And so Abraham never built a true home in Canaan. God is going to work here in chapter 23 to give him at least a foothold in the promised land. And while only God can pull that off, we're going to see that Abraham has his own big role to play in this as well. So I want to bring this down for us and make it personal and practical for us this morning. Have you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? God, what do you want from me? What, What do you want for me? And how do I know if I'm living in the center of your will? Well, Abraham is going to demonstrate for us here in chapter 23 eight don'ts, eight ways to avoid stepping outside of God's will for your life, or as I've subtitled the sermon for this morning, eight principles for pursuing God's promise in your life. And so without further ado, Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burial place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price... Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you. Bury your dead. And then Abraham bowed, down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. 
And so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burial place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, Father, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that the meditations of our hearts, our words would be pleasing in your sight this morning. Would you use our study of your word for our edification, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How do you make sure you don't avoid stepping outside of God's will for your life, God's promise for your life? How do you pursue that? Eight, eight ways. Number one, you don't get too attached to the things of this world, and that includes people. It's a hard truth. We read in verses 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died. This is Abraham's soulmate, his bride of over 100 years, a century. I don't even know what anniversary that would be, you know. I don't know anyone else has made it that far. Can you imagine losing your spouse over a hundred years, your only lifelong companion throughout the past 62 years of your sojourning as a stranger in Canaan. This is your only sense of familiarity, companionship. If anyone deserved to just pack it in, head home to the land of Ur of the Chaldeans from whence he came and where the rest of his now growing family resided, you know, Abraham never even got to meet his nephews and nieces and, you know, grand, great, great, whatever. Abraham could have said, God, it's been a good run. You know, you worked in spite of my sin to, to bless me with earthly riches and now with the son, Isaac. But I want him to know his family. I want a sense of home. As fun as, it's, as, fun as it is living out of a suitcase um, in tents, just wandering around the Middle East waiting for your next move, I think I'm going to head back to Ur. I'm going to cash in my 401k and I'm going to put my feet up on the couch for these last few decades of my life. Abraham is 137 years old. He reminds me of that guy from the movie Up, if you've seen that. Great movie. After you pick up your Bible at the info bar, go read it and then watch Up. You've got the rest of your afternoon planned out for you. He had this big dream all his life of living in a home on top of Paradise Falls with his wife Ellie, but when she dies just takes the wind out of his sails until he gets inspired for one last big life adventure in honor of his deceased wife. And that's Abraham here. He could have let Sarah's death just take all the wind out of his sails, pack it in, but instead he decides to trust God for one last big life adventure, the acquisition of the first little corner of the promised land for God's promised people. 
If Abraham has learned anything these past 62 years following God now, it's that you cannot get too attached to things, not to a place. God called Abram to leave his homeland all the way back in chapter 12, at the ripe old age of 75 when he had settled down. Everything he had ever known, he left. Can't get too attached to people. Abram left, again, his, his whole extended family. Later he would leave his nephew Lot. Then he was forced to exile his wife Hagar and his child Ishmael. He nearly loses his son Isaac, and now he does lose his wife Sarah. Where does Abram, Abraham now, where does he find the strength to persevere on? The rest of Hebrews chapter 11 explains for us, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's great hope in life wasn't to finally settle down in Canaan. His hope in life wasn't for this life at all. Verse 16 of Hebrews He desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Abraham kept his eyes fixed on heaven. And so when he had to leave Ur, you know, and and wander, he didn't worry. He kept his eyes fixed on the Lord. And so when he lost his parents, his siblings, his nephew, his sons, his wives, he, he could say, God is enough for me. Abraham understood that We are all just passing through this place called earth. As James 4.14 asks, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, do you realize that you've only got this one life to live? And in the light of eternity, it is one hopelessly short life to live. And so you better make it count. How do you make your life count? In the light of eternity. You live in the light of eternity. That was the message of Easter from last Sunday. For those of you who were here, yes, if this life is all there is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If in Christ, Paul said, we Christians have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Bible says we are all going to be raised like him, with him, either to eternal paradise with God, our Father in heaven, or to eternal agony apart from him in hell. The only way to live life, all 75 of your years, or 175 years in Abraham's case, the only way to live life on this earth that makes sense from an eternal perspective is not to get too attached here, not to get too comfortable here. This world is not our home. But like Abraham, we desire a better country. Like Jesus who said, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. And so how about you this morning? Where is your heart this morning? This is an opportunity to kind of assess, do a check-in on your heart. 
Is it with a place? Is it with a people? They say home is where your heart is, right? Like I tell you, my, my home is not 14180 Cross Trails Drive, Chesterfield, Missouri. That is not where my heart is. We could, God can move us tomorrow. I think I would be okay with that. As long as I was with my family. See, this is where I can confess my sin. Because, boy, the, the, the people part is so much more convicting for me. You know, I, I leave for uh, the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis tomorrow for three days, and I hate being away from my family. Polly is actually going to come with me this year. But even just leaving my kids for three days, I've just been randomly crying and hugging them all weekend long. I hate being away from my kids. I am attached to them. My heart is where my kids are. But we've got to remember this morning that we are just passing through this place. We are all temporary. Like a vapor, the Bible says. This world is passing away and everything with it. So friends, I encourage you this morning, you better invest in a better country, in a more permanent home with foundations built by God. And yet, number two, the counterbalance to that is that in your years of sojourning here as a stranger and an exile on this earth, we are encouraged, don't miss out on relationships. In verse 2, we hear Abraham's reaction to Sarah's death, that he mourned and wept. This is the first mention of tears in the Bible. Certainly not the last. There will be a whole lot more tears to come for the next 1,164 chapters of Scripture until Revelation chapter 21 when Jesus finally returns a second time to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. That will be a glorious day. But until that day comes, part of what it means to be a stranger and an exile here on earth is to be connected in deep, meaningful ways to other people. Ways that, yes, open you up to the possibility of being deeply hurt by their rejection, by their loss. That's not just a possibility, it's an inevitability. That was point number one. If you live long enough, you will lose everyone that you love in this life. And that is scary for a lot of us. You know, they say it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And some of us want to reply, you, you must have never really lost someone like really close to you because it hurts and it's scary. I remember commenting to Polly years ago, probably, probably right around the time we were moving here to St. Louis, like Abraham, I had bounced all around. I grew up in West Tennessee in undergrad in South Carolina, seminary in Nashville, worked in northern Indiana, but more significantly, I, I battled an attachment disorder in response to my parents' divorce, and so I remember realizing at the age of 30 and commenting my wife that I could count on one hand the number of people in my life whose funerals I would cry at, who I cared about that deeply. Because I didn't let myself get close enough to people to be hurt by them. I had learned my lesson, so I kept everybody at a distance. Maybe that's you this morning. 
I praise God that he revealed that that issue in my heart and that today I can honestly say, stand up here and look at your half of your faces <laughs> and say to you, man, I, I love so many of you. Some of you I don't know. I love you too. I see some new faces, but, but in a deep, meaningful way, some of you I, I feel connected to and I love you. I would cry at your funeral. That's natural. It's the way God made us. It's biblical. Jesus wept. Everyone's favorite memory verse, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's ungodly to stuff your emotions, to be emotionally unavailable to your wife, to your kids, to your friends. That doesn't make you more of a man. It makes you an emotional child. It makes you immature. God wants better for us. It really is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Do not miss out on relationships. Number three, don't get sidetracked from God's plan. Get this yo-yo effect, you know. It's good to mourn, to weep, and then it's good to move on. Verses 3 and 4. Here Abraham rose up and said to the Hittites, and yes, Abraham was sad. He was heartbroken even. But what, what does he do in verses 3 and 4? He, he gets up. And he begins this negotiation process. There's a phrase that counselors sometimes use with people who struggle with depression or anxiety. Do the opposite. If you feel like staying in bed all day with depression, do the opposite. Force yourself to get up. You suffer from agoraphobia. You want to run away from that crowded place or situation that scares you. Do the opposite. Immersion therapy. I'm sure Abraham feels like just wallowing in his grief forever. Ancient Israelite custom called him to do that for 30 days, 30 days of mourning. Remember, custom would have also been for Abraham to, to return home to Ur, to go bury Sarah there with the rest of his family. Burying her here in Canaan is a sign of faith in God's promise that one day he will give to his descendants all this land, even though Abraham himself would never live to see that day. And in spite of his sorrow and at the risk of burying his wife in a totally foreign land, like I remember uh, when my mom sold the house that I grew up in and she moved across town, one of the hardest things for her was leaving her mom's remains. She had buried her mother's ashes in our backyard and planted a tree in her honor there. She thought she'd live in that house forever. Now she's got a trespass to visit her mother's gravesite. Similarly, here is Abraham, a foreigner in Canaan, but he never stops hearing God's promises ringing in his ears to your offspring, I will give this land, Genesis 12, 7. All the land that you see, I will give it to you and to your offspring forever, Genesis 13, 15. To your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, Genesis 15, 18. I will give you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, Genesis 17:8. Promise after promise, reminder. And so too for us today. We cannot let our feelings or what is customary, our emotions or etiquette, sidetrack us from what God has called us to do. God may call you to do things that are scary in this life. He may call you to be uncomfortable. He may 
call you to things that don't make any sense from a world's perspective, will you trust him? Will you trust him in faith? Number four, don't be a separatist. Quick practical one here. We read verses five and six. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. Here's the point. God uses Abraham's existing relationships with the Hittites, with the surrounding peoples, his reputation to help accomplish this land deal. If Abraham had been walking around for 62 years with his nose in the air, looking down on everyone, these pagan inhabitants of Canaan, do you think they would have called him their Lord, a prince of God? So again, the takeaway for us is that God calls us to be in the world but not of the world. It's the phrase we use in the church often. But so many Christians today, and understandably so, right? the world is a scary, dark place, especially these days. But we have turned that into not in the world and not of the world. And I, I'm not saying, I'm not getting up here and making some big political thing about not homeschooling your kids or, you know, I'm not telling you not to in, intentionally try and support Christian business owners whenever you can. I'm just saying that if we don't know our next door neighbor's friends, they're, they're, that's, a, that's a problem. You know, if, if you are hunkered down in your little Christian bunker with your exclusively Christian circle of friends listening to your Christian podcast in between the half dozen Christian ministries you attend, my question is, when do you have time to meet a non-Christian? Like, how are you ever going to share the gospel with anyone who isn't already a believer? Jesus has called us to be light and salt. A room that's bright doesn't need another lamp as much as a room that's dark. I'm not saying, you know, skip church, forget about church. We, we come here to recharge our batteries on Sunday so that we can go out Monday through Saturday and push back darkness. That's what the church is and does. Salt, light and salt. Salt in antiquity it was used to stem the decay of meat. But you've got to rub it into the meat. Who are you rubbing shoulders with? And are you rubbing off more on them? Or are they rubbing off more on you? Don't be a separatist. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. Point number five, don't be wishy-washy. Verses seven through nine, Abraham said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's the end of his field. For the full price, I'll give it to him in your presence as property for a burial place. Abraham's request here is direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't drag his feet. God loves decisiveness, resoluteness. God promises us. Jeremiah 29, 13, repeated in Deuteronomy 4, 29, elsewhere. You will seek me and find me when you seek me, how? With all your heart. God's command to us, the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. What is it? 
You shall love the Lord your God, how? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Conversely, God hates wishy-washiness. What did he tell the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He said, because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. How about you? Are you hot or cold this morning? Are you in or out? Get off the fence. God hates fences. There's no such thing as dip a toe in the water Christianity. That's why Jesus called his disciples in the gospel accounts to sell everything and come follow him. Leave everyone, come follow me. There's no place for hemming and hawing. No testing the water. You jump in the deep end, both feet first, or you don't jump in at all. Stay out the pool. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we wishy-washy? Am I on the fence? Am I just dipping a toe in? Or have you resolved to give God your whole heart, whole mind, whole soul, whole strength? To trust him wherever he leads you, he is worth all of it, your unwavering pursuit of his good promises for your life. He's worth it. Number six, in the same vein, don't compromise God's plans. Don't compromise. Verses 10 through 13. It's the third back and forth now. Now Ephron answered Abraham, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give Give it to you with the cave in it. Just go bury your dead. And Abraham said to Ephron, but, but if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Please accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham wants to buy the cave. Ephron wants to give him the land surrounding it. What is going on here? John MacArthur explains for us in his study Bible this suggests not that Ephron felt generous, but that he was constrained by Hittite feudal polity, which tied ownership of the land with service to the ruler. Passing the land to Abraham would pass also feudal responsibilities to Abraham, making him liable for all the taxes and duties. This Ephron was apparently anxious to do, thus the offer to give the land. Gordon Wenham has even a, a little different take, adds this to it. Abraham can use Ephron's grave, but Ephron implies that he does not intend to sell the land in perpetuity. Land merely given is land on a loan. A gift as opposed to a sale places the recipient under obligation, uh, that places the recipient under obligation to the donor. Think about it. If you are paying to rent an apartment, the landlord has certain obligations to you, right? He's got to come fix things when they break. In the time of COVID, he can't even legally kick you out. He owes you because you paid him. But if you're just in between apartments, your buddy's doing you a solid by letting you crash with him for a bit, who owes whom then in that scenario? Right? Even if you offer to throw him a little rent money, he may decline. Why? 
So he doesn't have to feel bad when you start leaving dirty dishes all over the place and turn the TV volume up way too loud at night and leave hair all over his bar of soap in the shower. And he just had his enough that he wants to evict you. You can't say, well, wait a minute, I thought we had a deal. No deal, just a favor. Now it's revoked. I love you, bro, but you got to go. At first glance, it may seem like Ephron is being nice here. It may seem like Abraham is being foolish to refuse his generosity. Why pay for a field that you can get for free? Abraham isn't being foolish, he's being faithful. He knows that God has not called him to lease space in the promised land. He's going to own it. What about you? can be tempting to compromise on God's plan for our lives. To settle for less than all that God has called us to. I know God wants me to marry a Christian, but I'm getting old and this guy I'm dating is really nice. That's close enough, right? Or, or I'm really convinced that God is calling me to, to this job, this new opportunity, but if it's not fully panning out yet, and I'm getting nervous, and so in the meantime, there's this other job, it's at least a steady paycheck, and I don't have to stay there forever, but then you do. You, you settle in, you never move on. Don't compromise. Don't settle for less than all that God has called you to. Number seven, don't miss people or opportunities running out of time here, but we'll look quickly at verses 14 through 16. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Just bury your dead. Ephron's probably wealthy like Abraham. He's like 400 shekels. That's, you know, chump change. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for him the silver that he had named. It would have been easy for Abraham to get so caught up in the argument by this point that he's not even listening to Ephron anymore. Have you ever gotten so caught up in an argument, dig your heels in so deep you forget what you were even arguing about? Some of us who are married every day, right? Not, not me, y'all sinners. If you do that, you miss both the person in front of you and any potential opportunity that God might give you to actually resolve the conflict. I had a marriage counselor ask me once, Will, what do you care about more, your wife or being right? I said, why do I have to pick? And then I launched into him, you know, another debate. I learned my lesson later. But not Abraham. He, he listened to Ephron and because he did, when Ephron got so flustered that he let it slip how much he thought the field was worth, Abraham just calmly pulled out his wallet, measured out the silver, he took the deed to the property from Ephron. They say that when God shuts a door, he opens a window. Right? But you won't realize it if you're too busy trying to beat down the door. You need to listen for the Lord's leading and then have the courage to actually take those opportunities, walk through those open windows as God reveals them to you. Lastly, number eight, don't underestimate God's plans. Don't underestimate God's plans. Verses 17 through 20, the field 
and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And you notice by now how many times Moses emphasized it was handed over in front of all the Hittites. Argument happened in front of all the Hittites. It's like every verse that reminds us. Everyone was there. Why? So that no one for generations to come can question Abraham's rightful ownership of the land. This is the only little plot corner of the promised land that Abraham ever owned. And how did he get it? I mean, is this a plan Abraham could have hatched? He wasn't powerful enough to take it by force. He was rich, but he wasn't wealthy enough to buy all of Canaan. Abraham was able to accomplish the plans and promises that God had laid on his heart because he had a good reputation, he didn't get sidetracked, he was bold, faithful, and uncompromising, he paid attention to God and to people along the way, but most importantly, number eight, he knew that nothing was impossible with God. In the same way that Hebrews 11 says Abraham trusted God would even bring Isaac back from the dead, if that's what he had to do to fulfill his promise of a people, when he was raising the knife to Isaac's throat, here, Abraham trusted that God could even use Sarah's death, the saddest event in his 137-year, not-so-easy life. God could even use that to accomplish his good plans for Abraham's future and secure his place in the land. And so I ask you this morning in closing, how have you seen God in your life take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good? The story, friends, gives us a glimpse of the gospel. When God took the greatest evil in all of human history, his perfect son, Jesus' death, on the cross, and he redeemed it, and he used it to accomplish the greatest good in all of time, the salvation of all who would trust in Christ by faith. If God can do that, if God has done that for you in your life, in your personal testimony, if God has used the greatest evil for you, for the greatest good in your life, Nothing is impossible with him. Trust him again this morning. Amen. Let's pray.